Would you like that? I have been the um, victim of some of those Father's Day blessings. Or should I say the recipient? You know, and I realize I put my kids in a really difficult spot because there's not a Ruth Chris anywhere close. So Outback Steakhouse would be just fine. So, um, I don't want to make their, I don't want people asking you, did you take your dad to Ruth Chris? So Outback is okay. Hey, we have a wonderful opportunity here to um, talk about some things from God's Word that I think have a lot of application to fathers. Um, and, and then listen, when I say that, the danger of saying something about fathers or about mothers is then all the teenagers and kids shut their ears down or senior adults go, I'm kind of out of that. No, this is God's word. It has value for all things. And if you want to be godly, then anything that applies to any particular person, there are principles that apply to you as well. And so we're going to be in Matthew 17, verses 14 through 23, kind of a short passage this morning. And we're going we're gonna to notice, I think, some really imp- important things. Once we get to Matthew 17, uh, for the last six months of Jesus' life, he withdraws from public and kind of gathers with his disciples and very intentionally and very intimately and very intensely, wow, that's three I words, um, begins to teach his disciples. This is kind of like he's, he's in the funnel. He's heading to Jerusalem where he knows he's going to die and he wants to really make sure that his disciples get it. Last week in verses 1 through 13 of Matthew 17, we saw, you know, God, t- you know, take off his, his disguise, Jesus take off his disguise, and we, we saw his glory, we saw his transfiguration, and we see his glory on the mountain. But when we come to verses 14 through 23, he comes off of the mountain into the valley where he deals with the suffering that is so common to humanity. And I think as we look at this passage and we see Quite frankly, Jesus' humanity and and the disciples' lack of getting it, we're going to stumble upon a very important principle and a very vital practice if we want to be godly fathers, if we want to be godly people, period. And so you have an outline in your bulletin. If you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures, it'll be on the screen, but also in front of you there's a uh, pew Bible there. It's page 694. If you have that pew Bible, we'll begin, we'll pick the story up in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 17. God's word says this. They're coming down off of the mountain, and it says, When they reached the crowd, a man approached and knelt down before Jesus. Lord, he said, have mercy on my son, because he has seizures and suffers severely. He often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they couldn't heal him. Jesus replied, You unbelieving and rebellious generation, how long will I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Then Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And from that moment, The boy was healed. Our first point this morning is that Jesus demonstrates a most patient power. Jesus demonstrates a most patient power. We see the power very clearly. Jesus comes down off of the mountain where he was just transfigured, showed his glory, his authority, and his power, and he comes to a father who has a pressing problem. And the father comes and calls him Lord, which I think sometimes we inject that with all kinds of theological meaning, that may just be a respectful form of address, sir. 
Now, he kneels, which is the position of worship. So at the very least, we can say the Father comes to Jesus with great respect and the expectation that Jesus has the ability to do what his disciples have proven incapable of. Now, remember, one of the things that's good about being in a series where we go week to week is you start to get context. You start to realize, huh, well, that's really interesting. Just last week, while Jesus is on the mountain, Peter, being the good um, disciple that he is, put his foot in his mouth again. And at the moment that Peter put his foot in the mouth, it says that a, a cloud that shone came down on the mountain, and from the cloud came a voice where God said, this is my son in whom I delight in. Listen to him. Jesus comes down the mountain, and a father comes up to Jesus and says, this is my son. Help him. Have mercy on him. This man had brought his beloved son to God's only begotten and beloved son. And he's got a serious problem. It says he's having seizures, that sometimes the seizures hit him at the most inopportune times. He falls into the fire. He falls into the water. I mean, he's, he's probably, for lack of a better term, a freak show. Because you don't fall into the fire without it leaving a mark. And so you have charred and burned body and deformity. And we know that the effect of this, I think the King James, I don't know if we've got any King James people. Give me any King James. All right, I see that hand. Um, um, I think the King James says that the boy's problem was lunacy. He was a lunatic. Some of your older translations will say that. I didn't know this, but that word lunatic, it should sound like something you know. It comes from the word lunar, meaning moon. And so people thought if you look at the moon too long, you'll go crazy. Not just the tides, but it would affect your mental state. So he was a lunatic. A more accurate translation says he had seizures. There was some kind of epilepsy. But we know that the cause of all of this, the physical manifestation, was a spiritual reality. He was possessed by a demon. The boy has a big problem. And Jesus demonstrates his power that when the man comes and he says, have mercy on my son, help him, Jesus performs an immediate and complete healing of the boy. Here's what I think is really awesome. I mean, the seizures stop, the demon is gone. I think his flesh is made whole again. The Bible doesn't say that specifically, but it says, the, the, the note, it says, from that moment, immediately the boy was healed. And Jesus doesn't do halfway work. If you take your car to be repaired by Jesus, you're not going to go, hey, you missed a scuff. You know, you think you could buff that out for me? No, when he returns it back, it's in better than new condition. And so he heals the boy immediately and completely. He says, bring the boy to me, which is interesting because it sounds like something else Jesus said when he says, hey, listen, I got all these people following me and it's time to eat. Why don't you feed them? And they go, Jesus, all we got is a happy meal. Some kid got a happy meal. That's not enough for all these people. And Jesus says what? Bring it to me. He says, these disciples can't heal them. Jesus says, bring the boy to me. So whether it is ill health or lack of resources, Who's the only one that's going to meet your needs? That's Jesus. And he demonstrates his power. How do we see his patience? Well, <laughs> on the mountain, you saw Jesus' divinity very clearly. You know, he, shiny Jesus, voice from heaven, Moses and Elijah. Boom, pow, it's right there. Here in the valley, we see Jesus' humanity. And one of the cardinal tenets of the Christian faith is um, we believe that Jesus was 
50% man and 50% God, right? He was 100% God and 100% man. We know that Jesus slept. And the Bible tells us that God doesn't sleep. The Bible says that Jesus ate, and we know that God the Father doesn't need to eat. But here we see his humanity, and we see his patience, because Jesus is seriously perturbed, which is a Greek word for ticked off. He is not happy. And here's the way that it kind of sounds if you're reading it. Jesus comes down the mountain. Father comes running up. Have mercy on my son. And, and you know, Jesus puts his hands on his hips. He goes, you wicked and rebellious generation. And it sounds like the words are directed from his lips to the Father. And that's not it at all. Because the Father has faith. He's bringing his son to Jesus. Where is a better place to take your kid? The problem is that the disciples were not able to do what Jesus had clearly told them they had the power and the authority to do. Jesus has said they could do that. So the wicked and the rebellious and the unbelieving and adulterous generation certainly applies generically to everybody. I mean, yes, that's me. Yes, that's you. But it's directed specifically at the disciples. Because when we read this passage, our temptation is to think that the point of this story is about the healing of a boy. And that's not it at all. That, it becomes a teaching opportunity for what is truly the point of the passage. And the point of the passage is the disciples' inability, the disciples' um, powerlessness. Because there's a key word that occurs three times, and the word is unable. Verse 16, I brought my boy to your disciples, and they were unable to heal him. Verse 19, the disciples asked Jesus privately, why were we unable to do it? Verse 20, Jesus says, if you would have faith like a mustard seed, Nothing will be impossible, nothing will be unable for you to do. So, there's a point that the writer's trying to get us to, to get to, and it's the same exact word in the original language. We just translate it unable or impossible. And he says the issue, the main thing that they're dealing with here, is the disciples' inability. And Jesus is upset that he has given his power, he has commissioned his disciples to do this, and a man comes up and says, well, I brought him to your disciples, and they couldn't do it. The father's grieved because his son is in trouble. Jesus is frustrated because on the mountain he's shown and glowed. But in the valley he moans and groans. On the mountain we see his divinity. And here we see his humanity. And the disciples' inability reflects upon Jesus. It puts Jesus in a bad light. What's the issue? Why couldn't they do it? Is it the fact that Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, and the other nine were down there, and Jesus wasn't close enough? You know, they weren't connected to the power source. They didn't have a long enough extension cord. No, that's not it at all. Jesus had commissioned the disciples to go out two by two, uh, 70 disciples to go out two by two, and Jesus wasn't there, and they did miracles. So the issue is not the physical lack of Jesus' presence, and the frustration here just stands out. I, I think if, if, if God had tapped you to be the person that wrote scripture, you would have edited Jesus' frustration out. Because, you know, hey, we want Jesus to like, he, we want him with the lamb around the neck and the long locks of love and, you know, peaceful, meek, cool Jesus, not furrowed brow, angry Jesus. Proof to me of the divine inspiration of scripture. They don't hide anything. Jesus didn't sin, but he's frustrated. And typically we know him as being long-suffering and patient. So what's the issue? It's the fact that Jesus has to endure the unbelief of his disciples. 
And before we cast stones at the twelve too quickly, how many of you suffer from the same thing that Jesus says is the problem? Little faith. Jesus has just revealed his true nature. He has shown his power and his glory, and yet the disciples still don't believe in him. And this statement, how long must I be with you? How long must I endure this? Expresses both personal disappointment and Jesus' cognizance of where he came from and where he's going. When you go, um, you know, at Thanksgiving to your mother-in-law's house, and she says, oh, how unexpected, how long are you staying? That's not because she wants you to stick around. You know, she's not wanting you to call in longer. And Jesus is saying, I'm just visiting. How long must I endure this? I just had sweet communion with my father. He came down and he talked to me. And he gave me his approval. He said, this is my son and whom I am well pleased. Listen, what son doesn't need to hear that? I know, dads, this is a day for you. But this is a day for you to bless your kids too. To give your approval. Jesus has just experienced communion with the father like he had before the incarnation. And he longs for it. And when the cloud fades, and the, or when the, the voice fades away and the cloud goes away, he's stuck with a bunch of people that he's demonstrated his power and glory to, and they still don't trust him. One of the terrible things about having a teenager, or maybe a young adult kid, is that if you're a parent and you have tried to do what the book says you're supposed to do, you have loved them, you have cared for them, you have done everything with maybe not the purest of pure motives, but you have really sought You've sought to, you're not perfect. You know what, for your kids to expect that is ludicrous, but you've you've tried to do it by the book. And then you become an idiot when your kid becomes a teenager. You don't know anything anymore. And you know what, my friend's parents don't do this, and oh my goodness, it's not the 1950s anymore, mom and dad, you're so old-fashioned. It's not old-fashioned, it's plain old morality, kids, deal with it. You shouldn't do that kind of stuff. And you do the right thing, And it's heartbreaking when you try to do everything by the book and you're still slighted. And you have to ask the question from Jesus' perspective. Has he not proven trustworthy? No, he's proven pretty trustworthy. As a matter of fact, he's going to demonstrate his trustworthiness again at the very end of our passage. Has he not used his power well? No, that's us who don't use power well when we get it. Jesus always used his power well. He never used his power for his own self-advancement or his own self-glorification. He used his power to glorify his Father, and he used his power to help people. He used his power well. Has he misused his authority for his own good? No. He's used his authority to be a servant for the people who really should be worshiping him. And yet he came to serve them. And despite all of this glory of who God is, he still has to deal with a rabble like us who say, oh yeah, we believe, but help our unbelief. Jesus is perturbed by enduring the unbelief of people who call themselves his disciples. In verses 19 through 21, Jesus kind of talks about what the problem is. And he teaches us on the ultimacy. I'm not even sure if that's a word. He teaches us on the ultimacy of prayer. Look at verses 19 through 21. Later, the disciples approached Jesus privately. They don't want to do this publicly. Privately, and they said, uh, what's our problem? Why couldn't we do it? What's Jesus say? He gives a very succinct answer. He says, because of your little faith. I assure you, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you would tell this mountain, move from here to there, 
and it would move, and nothing would be impossible for you. I love it. Did you notice we just sang a song to start off talking about how unstoppable God is? Um, we sang a song about his, his ability, um, how God is able. No, what a wonderful thing for us to sing about. We're, nothing would be impossible when we're connected to the source. So the disciples ask, what's our problem? And Jesus has little faith. Now, here's the problem. If you read the scripture closely, we just read verses 19 and 20. Uh, They said, what's our problem? Why couldn't we cast the demon out? And Jesus said, because of your little faith. And then he gives an illustration, and he says, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you'll be able to do what? Move mountains. So, all right, the disciples have little faith, but then the illustration, Jesus says, is little faith will move mountains. So when we hear the word little faith, when Jesus says, oh, you have little faith, don't think of this as a quantity issue. It's a quality issue. He's not saying, oh, little faith, because he just says little faith is effective. Little faith will get things done. What they have is little faith that is poor quality faith. It's, it's inconsistent. The mustard seed, and this is, this is a cool thing, the mustard seed is the smallest seed in that, in that area. Jesus was not in the Pacific Northwest, so he's not talking redwoods because they would have no idea what a redwood tree is. He's talking about the mustard tree or the mustard bush, and the seed is, it's small. (laughs) Microns, whatever. Um, It's little, but in comparison to how it starts off and how it ends up, the growth is incredible. And so the point that Jesus is making here is they didn't persist in faith. So when Jesus says, if you have a little faith, The thing that he is not saying, and we kind of do this with Jesus' statement about having the faith of a child, Jesus is not here commending immaturity. Because then we got a lot of people go, oh, great, then I'm perfect. Immaturity is not the goal. Simple childlike trust is, and that trust grows. Here's what happens with that mustard seed. You take that little bitty seed, and you put it in the ground, and guess what? It doesn't stay small. What does it do? It cracks open, and as it derives nutrition from the from the ground, and as it's watered, and as it starts to spread up, uh, the sun's uh, rays hit it, and it begins to photosynthesize energy, and it grows, and where it ends up is completely not what you would have expected from this littlest of seeds. In comparison, its growth is phenomenal, and that's the point of mustard seed faith. If your faith now, after 30 years of walking with Jesus, is mustard seed faith, you need to go see a doctor. Something is wrong because Jesus is not saying, you know what, yeah, just have a little bit of faith and coast that way the rest of your life. Grow. Mustard seed faith starts little, but it ends big. And this whole idea of poor faith is all over. We'll just take three examples from from Matthew's gospel. Matthew chapter 6, verse uh, 25 through 35 is the whole passage where he says, consider the lilies of the field, consider the birds of the air. Why do you worry? You worry because you have little faith. You have poor faith. Peter, um, Matthew 14, there's the storm. Jesus comes. They think he's a ghost. Everybody freaks out. He says, Lord, if it's you, call me, come to you. He comes to him, and then Peter sees the winds and the waves, and he falls, and Jesus has to rescue him. They go, what's the matter? And he says, oh, you have such little faith. Matthew 16, verse 8, Jesus has fed 5,000. Jesus has fed 4,000. And he's walking along with the disciples, and he says, beware the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. Then they go, oh, shoot, we didn't buy, we didn't pack a lunch. We didn't pack a picnic. We don't have bread. Where are we going to get bread? And Jesus says, really? I just fed like 50,000 people, and you, you, you're worried about packing a lunch? Oh, you of poor 
quality faith. It's not supposed to stay small. And what the disciples had done is they had treated the authority and the power that Jesus had given to them like a magic mantra. Oh, just say these, say this prayer, and bada boom, bada bing, you know. So the disciples, the guy, dad brings the son, and you know they, they whatever it is that Jesus had given them, they say you know bippity boppity boo, and nothing changes, and they go shoot, we must have done it wrong. Maybe we need to say it deeper, bippity boppity boo. Nothing happens. Oh, I know what we need to do. In the name of Jesus, bippity boppity boo. They use the prayer like a magic charm. And what they are not doing, they are trusting in the formula, but they're not trusting in the power source. The problem is not that Jesus is not around. It's that their faith is of a poor quality. Now, here's the thing that's interesting. Matthew just said, when the disciples said, uh, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? Matthew records Jesus as saying, you could not cast out this demon because of your little faith. Mark chapter 9, verse 29, exact same story told from Mark's perspective. And when the disciples asked Jesus why they couldn't cast the demon out in Mark, he says, this kind does not come out except by prayer. All right, so you skeptics out there, you Bible students out there, want to find all these discrepancies in the Bible. Matthew says it's bad faith. Mark says it's not praying. So is that a problem? Well, on the surface, yes. What's the relationship between prayer and faith? This is good. I like this. Faith is an internal quality. It's something that happens on the inside, where God changes your heart. Prayer is what you do on the outside to demonstrate that you're a person of faith. You got that? I love the way one person says it, <clears throat> and I don't know who it is, but he said, prayer is how faith breathes. That's pretty good, isn't it? And so there's a, there's a good, there's a good um, illustration of this. When we talk about, when we talk about baptism, <clears throat> um, the younger someone is when they are baptized, the more they struggle with knowing what exactly they did when they get to be 25 years old. Did I really have faith? Did I do it because grandma wanted me to? Did I do it because of peer pressure? Probably one of the number one conversations that I have. You know, I don't even know if, what I repented of when I was five years old. I just don't know what it is. Here's the issue. For baptism, as people who take the word seriously, for baptism to be effective, you have to have faith. We believe in believer's baptism, that you should have, you should have faith and one of the ways you demonstrate that faith is through the obedience of baptism. And so if when you were baptized, you were not a believer, you were not baptized. You just got wet. You took a bath in front of a bunch of people, which is really kind of weird. Um, you took a bath in front of a lot of people, but you did not get baptized. Because for baptism outwardly to be effective, faith must be a reality in the heart. So baptism is an outward picture of an inward reality. So here's the thing. The, 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 the household of the Christian faith, there's a door. And the door is called baptism. It's what you open and you, out here you're out, in here you're in. Baptism is the door that you open to get into the Christian house. You do it one time. How many times should you be baptized? Once. How often should you pray? Three times a day? Who says three times a day? Breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Right? 
God, thank you for the food. Some people, we don't bless food. They don't know how to pray. You know, God, thank you for the, oh, wait, no, I'm in a hospital. Uh, bless her food. No, that's wrong too. Um, we just get stuck in a rut with our, our prayer stuff. How, how often should we pray? Pray without ceasing. So baptism is the way in which inward faith is outwardly pictured through a one-time act. But prayer is the continual way that we allow our faith to be manifested. So, man, here's a killer question. If the quality of your faith was solely assessed on the vitality of your prayer life, where would you be? I hate to ask the question. I feel like it's faithless not to. Where would you be? Jesus is saying, listen, the reason this didn't happen is you didn't pray. And the reason you didn't pray is you didn't have faith. To be effective in casting out demons in this situation requires persistent prayer. Not a formula or a ritual, but a deep and earnest prayer that emerges from a life of faith. And Jesus' prayerlessness in this instance is powerlessness. Two things that I think are really helpful that summarize this. Very clearly, I think what the Bible is saying is that connecting with Jesus in prayer both enables and empowers our ministry. I said this in the first service. If um, whatever it is you do, we talk, we're talking about committees, okay? Um, talk about ministries at the church. If you, can, if you can teach a Sunday school class in your own power, is that what you want? You're going to be able to do it without Jesus? Are you ministering in your own strength? Or do you want God to take your natural personality, strengths, temperament, gifting, talent, and then add to that the, the blessing of the Spirit? Uh, listen, I, not, not in this church, but I, I have been in churches where the Sunday school teacher never prays about his lesson because he doesn't prepare to Saturday night. And if there is any prayer that he prays, it's, dear God, help me just to get through Sunday school tomorrow. How much better for what you do to be covered in prayer. Because prayer, what Jesus is saying here, is it enables and empowers ministry. If what you're doing is on this level because it's prayerless, nothing will be impossible for you if you have that kind of unceasing prayer. The second thing that I think he really says, and we've kind of covered this, is that prayer is the way we most clearly express our faith. Prayer is the way we most clearly express our faith. Again, Prayer is faith breathing. The very first lesson after the transfiguration, where Jesus has just shown his mighty, incredible, unstoppable power, is for him to teach his disciples how powerless they are. Completely and totally. And if you can teach the Bible apart from prayer, good for you. I can't. It's a terrible story to share on Father's Day, but I'll, I'll share it. Colin's not in here, is he? Okay. <clears throat> Colin's a trooper, man. Just turned six. And like, man, he's going to conquer the world. His name, Colin, comes from Nicholas. It means conquer. Yeah, that's right. Um, he's going to do it. <laughs> and so uh, a couple weeks ago, I came up here to college cycle on Oakland and was going to ride my bike. I need to get my bike fixed. It's like four miles, four and a half miles. He rode it with me and like he was ready to like do it again. He's like, Dad, that was four miles? Yeah, let's do 10 next time. I'm like, buddy, you're six. Let's slow down here a little bit. Daddy gets sore, you don't. And so he loves to ride his bike. And in our neighborhood, it's not like, you know, Mount Everest, but there's a pretty steady grade kind of going down. And um, Marcy and I were riding with him. And thank God he had a helmet on. 
But you know what, Dad, it's, Dad's it's Father's Day. What do you do when you raise your kids? You beat their pants off every time you have the opportunity to because there's going to be a day when you won't be able to anymore. <laughs> now, you've got to let them win every once in a while, right? You just encourage them, let them win. So we're pedaling, and I've got this big old mountain bike. It's got like 27-inch tires, you know, alloy rims, neon. It's all tricked out. It, it goes fast going downhill. So I don't even need to pedal, and I'm just blowing by him. And he's got a bike that, you know, up to like eight months ago had training wheels on it. So when he pedals, it's like this. <laughs> and he, we are, we are on the home stretch, heading home, and I'm like, buddy, I'll race you. So all of this is, is my fault. Everything I am about to tell you is my fault. So, but Marcy was there. And so, um, <laughs> so we're, we're going, and he's, he's about 10 feet in front of us, and he is just going, and we're going downhill. So not only does he have this little thing going, but he is, gravity is helping him. He is going faster than he has ever gone before. I'm like, buddy, you need to slow down. And he, he's, you know, he's pedaling. I mean, he's pedaling. The bike is shaking. He's going so fast. And he kind of looks back with this little devilish grin like, heck no, I ain't slowing down. He's just going. And right after that, it wasn't when he looked back. It was a few seconds after that. All of a sudden, he is pedaling so furiously, his feet fly off the pedals. So, I mean, his feet are going. And he, he doesn't have a clue because the, the pedals are still going. So you know you got to get the timing right to kind of get your foot in there. He doesn't have a clue what to do. And I saw it coming because first the feet start going like this, and then what happens? Then the handlebar starts going like this. And it was slow motion. I'm going, oh, my goodness, he's not going to have a face when he gets done with this. And sure enough, burp, poof. It's like a... You know, the judge from France gave him a 9.7. You know, there's a little, little too much splash on the entry, but it was, it was beautiful. And uh, he just completely wipes out, scraped road rash on his leg, on his hand. He's like tangled up in his bike. We've got to find a way to separate him. Jaws of life, you know, it was crazy. And you know why he did what he did? I warned him. And in his tears, I'm like, buddy, what happened? I thought I could do it. I thought I could do it. And not some words that you have shared that have gotten you in more trouble than you would ever think that you would ever be. And Jesus' point here is he's saying, guys, listen, you can't, okay? So just get that done. You can't live for God. You can't be holy. You can't be the husband or the dad or the daughter or the son that you want to be apart from Christ. Not at all. All. So get over yourself and what you think of yourself and realize that you've got to be connected to his power. And the way that that happens is through prayer. He concludes in verses 22 and 23 by stating his willingness to be a sacrifice. While that sounds terrible, he also affirms the certainty of his victory. Jesus states his willing sacrifice and certain victory, verses 22 and 23. As they were meeting in Galilee, Jesus told them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised up. And the disciples were deeply distressed. Now, you sit there and you hear that. Jesus says, I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back to life. And the end result of that is depression, distress. I'm like, sweet, I can't wait to see that. They're going to kill you, and you're going to get back up. They They didn't hear the second half of what Jesus said. They just heard the death part. And so Jesus proves his trustworthiness again. His disciples, after the transfiguration, they still don't get it. They still don't trust him. They still don't believe him. And then he proves his trustworthiness again because he goes, listen, I know how much you guys don't get it now, 
you are really going to flip out when we get to Jerusalem and I die. So let me just tell you in advance, we're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed. But he adds, this is his second major prediction, but now he adds a new fact with a crucial new detail that ups the ante incredibly. He says, I will be delivered into the hands of the Son of Men. That word is betrayed. So what's the new fact? It's not just that Jesus can get there and people are going to be mean to him. It's that one from among them is going to betray. They're going to sell Jesus out. And I think the reason we kind of focus on this is in chapters 18 through 20 is an incredible section where Jesus talks about the church and how her community life is to be regulated. And he says, you know what? If you're going to do life together as a faith family, you know the one thing, the, the one thing you can be assured of? It's one thing that manifests itself in two ways. The one thing you can be assured of when people get together is sin and suffering. And Jesus is just saying, before we get there and we talk about the suffering that you're going to go through, I just want you to know, I have suffered for you. I have sacrificed myself for you, and I'm not calling you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. Before we're reminded of our suffering, he says, let's, let's, keep, let's keep the focus where it needs to be, and it's my suffering for you. Now, we get this, because hindsight is always twenty twenty. but the disciples are depressed because they cannot stand, and they see absolutely no value in suffering. But Jesus is faithful in his proclamation because he says, yeah, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to get back up again too. I'm going to be victorious. He tells his disciples that despite his betrayal and murder, he will be raised in three days and he will emerge victorious because the way that he wins is through suffering. The way that he wins is not through prideful advancement, but it comes through humble service. And so today, what's the message for us? I'll just kind of keep it brief and make, make a couple observations related to the things we've already talked about. Patience does not seem to be a strong suit of most dads. To wield the sword of authority that God has given to you by his grace as he calls you to be leaders in your family is not one that needs to be wielded hastily. Earn the trust of your friends, your family, of your children by being patient. Listen, everybody knows you got power. It might just be the power of anger, but do you have the power of restraint? Do you have the power of self-control? You bless, you'll bless your kids by being patient. Being prayerful. It's kind of the crux of the passage that, you know, the way we demonstrate our faith is through prayerfulness. What do your kids think about your prayer life? Do they even think you have one? Or is it just kind of the formality that you do before you're allowed to eat? You know, oh, you already ate, so now you ha- we make prayer punishment. You ate your food before we prayed, so now you have to pray. Dang it. What, what's the quality of your prayer life? What, what's your prayer, what, what is your prayer for your kids? How are your kids included in your prayer life? What, what, is your, what are your prayer habits as a family? And last but certainly not least, Jesus said he was willing to be a sacrifice for even the unbelief that the disciples were manifesting at that time. Listen, guys, I've just shown you my, I, I've shown you my shiny nature. I, I, you know, I took my robe off and let you see, you know, unveiled God, and you still don't believe me? Doggone, how long do I have to put up with it? I'll tell you what, I'll tell you how long I've got to put up with it. About as long as it takes us to get to Jerusalem, where I'm able to die for your sin of unbelief. 
where I'm able to be the substitute for every bad thing you've done, for every bad thing you'll do, for every bad thought that you think. So Jesus says, I'm going to be the sacrifice. What family would not be blessed to have a patient dad, a prayerful dad, who manifests the depth of their spirituality by sacrificing for those that God has placed under your care? Prayers in place. We are so grateful for the sacrifice of your son for us. Not a fable, actual history. We thank you that even today as we read this passage, we see your humanity. You're not some fairy godmother who just kind of flits around happy-go-lucky. You get frustrated with our weakness and our sin and our unbelief. And frankly, it's good for us to see. God, I pray not just for the men in our room, but I pray for everyone that these kind of characteristics will epitomize us more. Today, we may not have even prayed. May that not be true of us by the time we put our heads in our pillows tonight. And may it not just be at Outback this afternoon. May it not just be, you know, in the fellowship hall that somebody prays for all of us, but that we become known as men as people, as a church of prayer. And that we see prayer not as an activity to be checked off a list of good things that Christians do, but that prayer becomes a real and vital way for us to just express our dependence upon you. We had the opportunity today to dedicate uh, Kinsley to you, and we remarked upon how children are just so completely dependent upon their parents. God is our Heavenly Father. May you put within our hearts and our minds Uh, the idea, the truth, that we are dependent upon you in the same way that little Kinsley is dependent upon her parents for everything. That there's nothing that's good in us. The good that we can accomplish only comes as we stay connected to you. So God, today, help us to make that connection. Help us to take that that next step. Help us to water that mustard seed and to see it grow and to be excited about where it's going to take us. Because God, that's the abundant life that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray.